Hey, this is Victor de Decker, a legal and tax advocacy officer at UHM Myanmar. Business in Myanmar can be quite challenging, and that's why it's important to have a clear understanding of the legal and tax framework in this country. UHM Myanmar intends to provide exactly that, through this podcast series spreading valuable and up-to-date information on legal and tax issues in Myanmar. I hope you like to learn more. Go on our website, urhmmyanmar.org. The government's tax reform process is gaining pace. In recent months, we have seen the Union Tax Law 2019 enacted. The Tax Administration Act is enforced with effect from the 1st of October 2019, and a new draft income tax law has been released by the government for public comment. There is too much ground for us to cover everything in this podcast, but I will be asking Ding Suk Peng, a tax partner at PwC, and Paul Cornelius, who heads up the tax function at PwC Myanmar, to provide us with insight on some of the key issues. Suk Peng, if we could start with you. The union tax law changes are probably the least complex of the reforms, but they did contain the so-called tax amnesty amendments. Could you a little bit explain what this means? Thank you, Victor. This is in relation to the reduced income tax rate applicable to the undisclosed source of income. And prior to 1st October 2019, the income tax rate on undisclosed source of income was ranging from 15 to 13%. However, under the Union Taxation Law 2019, the tax rate now are ranging from 3% to 30%. This means that the tax rate on undisclosed source of income have been reduced quite significantly, uh, which is from the previous 15% to 3%. And also, the reduced tax rate uh, shall only be applicable for the financial year starting from 1st October 2019 to 30th September 2020. Okay, interesting. Turning now to the Tax Administration Act, I understand this contains some very important changes in the way that taxes are managed by the government. Paul, could you help us to understand at a high level what this act is trying to achieve and when it starts to have an impact on tax, Myanmar's taxpayers? Thanks. The Tax Administration Law 2019 is an important part of the government's tax reform agenda. The government seeking to improve tax compliance and tax collection in Myanmar. Tax revenue as a percentage of GDP is getting better, but it does remain the lowest in ASEAN. The government is seeking to introduce new direct and indirect tax laws in the coming years, and the tax administration law can be seen as the glue that will bind the administration of these laws together. The objectives of the tax administration law are to modernize uh, the tax system and a tax administration system and to enable the government to collect tax more efficiently. It's also to maintain consistency in the administration of various tax laws and to define the rights and obligations of taxpayers and the IRD accurately. Also importantly is to make the self-assessment system more efficient and comprehensive for taxpayers. For example, it provides the ability for taxpayers to obtain binding private rulings and for the government to issue public rulings. The law has been effective from the 1st of October 2019. Specifically, it covers the administration of the Income Tax Act, Commercial Tax Act, Specific Goods Tax Act, and other taxes that are assigned from time to time to the DG of the IRD. Uh, it is important to note that the law is effective from the 1st of October 2019. 
it does contain transitory provisions. Um, so any legal proceedings, appeals or other prosecution started before the 1st of October 2019 will be governed by the, pre the relevant previous laws. Anything, however, where the IRD are going to collect tax from taxpayers on unsettled pay cases for the periods where they may have started before the tax administration law is in place, um, but these will now be settled under the provisions of the tax administration law that is effective from 1st of October 2019. So what do you mean by taxpayers having the ability to obtain tax rulings and the government issuing public rulings and why is this important? It's important because taxpayers need some certainty. They need to know what the uh, answers are to many pub, uh, complex tax questions that are not easily answered, they're maybe grey in nature. So the public rulings, the idea of these is to get them issued by the IRD. They're intended to clarify the law and they're intended to clarify the practice of the IRD. They'll be binding on the IRD. Um, they can be changed, but they can only be changed with future effect, prospectively. And the idea is to issue these statements from the, from the 1st of October uh, 2019 for consistent implementation of tax laws and to provide guidance, not just to the taxpayers, but to the tax officers that are having to administer the law. Advanced rulings are for benefit of taxpayers. It's all about the interpretation of the law on a particular matter for a taxpayer. He has to accurately describe what that is, issue is going to be and what he wants the ruling uh, to be based upon because it will be based on the facts and circumstances. But if he obtains the ruling, it will be a binding ruling. That ruling will be binding upon the IRD when they provide the, the ruling and can only be t changed again with prospective effect. So um, if there's a new law introduced, for example, that would override the, the ruling, then that new law will be effective, but only prospectively. It cannot go backwards. One thing taxpayers should take a look at is if they've got existing rulings that govern current and future transactions, they may want to consider getting one of these binding advance rulings because we've never had binding rulings in the past. So, Sukpeng, I understand that there have been significant changes to the tax penalty regime as a result of this act. Can you provide us with the details? Sure. The the tax administration law does provide a very comprehensive penalty regime for all breaches of tax law and administration. And this act will continue to provide high penalties and criminal prosecutions of fraud and evasion. And the statute of limitation for penalty is seven years from the date of offence, but it's 12 years if the offence involves fraudulent or re misrepresentation with intentional negligence. Under this law, or under this act, the DG has a right to grant a relief from whole or part of the penalties. Um, in other words, this law also introduces a scale of penalties depending on the gravity of the offence. For example, a lower penalty or no penalty to apply where a taxpayer has taken a reasonably arguable position under the tax law. But it is ultimately determined that this position is incorrect. 
So, and finally, Paul, I understand that this Act puts in place new provisions with regard to the assessment and appeal processes. Can you give us a brief overview and provide comments on any matters that could prove a headache for CAT taxpayers or the government? Yes, there are some, some good measures that are being introduced. So now when the taxpayer files a return under the self-assessment system, that return will actually take, the, the return that's filed will be taken to be a tax assessment. Everything will be kicked off from the filing of the return. The return will be deemed to be a tax assessment. That's very important because, as Sukping said, the DG can make a new assessment or reassessment within six years after the assessment year or 12 years uh, when we're looking at negligence or fraudulent acts. Going cap in hand with this is that the taxpayer is now going to be required to maintain its books and records for seven years from the date of the transaction. That's necessary to cover the period. The period for which the reassessment can take place is six years from the end of the year of assessment. So the taxpayer has to maintain books and records for seven years. It's a long period for a self-assessment system. Um, for a taxpayer, it's not just keeping the books and records. It's going to be very important that they're ready for audit. That audit can happen at any point within that period, within the period of six years from the end of the year of assessment. And you need to be able to demonstrate to the tax office not just the transactions that have occurred, but why they occurred and the tax ramifications of those. You've got to be ready for the audit long period of time. So um, keeping your books and records for seven years is important, but making sure you're ready for that audit for up to seven years is, uh, is a heavy weight upon and burden upon taxpayers. Um, the other changes that we're seeing coming through, so now a taxpayer can request, request an administrative review from the DG um, from the date of receipt of notice. So if the DG um, issues a notice um, that overturns the assessment of the taxpayer, then you've got a period of 30 days to request an administrative review. DG will respond to this in writing. Again, he disagrees with the position you're taking, then you can um, appeal to the Revenue Appellant Tribunal. This has been in existence for some time. The intention is that this becomes a tax court, i.e. the judiciary on the um, Revenue Appellant Tribunal will have strong tax knowledge. It's something we've seen in other countries. It's going to take a bit of time. It is going to put um, a burden onto the system from the, uh, the, the government's perspective. But in time, getting tax-knowledgeable judiciary is very important. Obviously, you'll still be able to appeal to the Supreme Court if you don't like the decision, or indeed the government doesn't like the decision that is coming out from the Revenue Appellant Tribunal. Okay. So moving on to the... Ta draft income tax law recently issued by the government. Sukpeng, could you provide us with the background to the draft law um, and when it's likely to be effective? Okay, the existing income tax law was enacted in the year 1974 and is relatively outdated. The current tax law is thinly legislated and subject to open interpretation and practice. So I would say there are gaps and problems in the current tax law that need to be addressed. So in October 2019, the government has released the draft income tax law for comments. It would appear that if this new law is 
if it's passed in its current form, it will then replace the existing income tax law 1974. This draft new income tax law uh, contains many new concepts that are in line with the international tax principle. It contains many provisions addressing tax avoidance issue, and along with the recently introduced uh, tax administration law 2019, it would help to encourage greater compliance by all taxpayers. So as mentioned um, uh, earlier, the government has invited comments on this draft income tax law by 31st December 2019, but it has not announced when the new tax law is likely to come into effect. Having said, based on the tax reform plan published by the Ministry of Planning and Finance, the government intends to introduce the brand new income tax law as soon as possible. Okay, and um, Paul, I, I often hear tax professionals talking about the basic tax concepts of residents and source. Are these clearly defined in the new draft tax law? And more, maybe more importantly, why do these concepts matter? Um, to why they matter? They matter because they're the basic building blocks of determining what income is taxable in Myanmar and how much. Um, they extend to tax treaties. A tax treaty is just a mechanism for determining how much tax is payable in a source country versus a residency country. Um, it's to allocate taxing rights between countries. So not only are they critical in terms of determining how much Myanmar tax you would pay under the normal laws, they're critical under the tax treaty as well. I have to say that the new act does very clearly define residency and source and the types of income that will be Myanmar's source going forward. There are changes. Um, so from a company's perspective, as of today, a company that is incorporated or created in Myanmar will be a Myanmar resident company. But also a company that is managed or controlled in Myanmar will be a Myanmar resident company. So if you've created a tax haven, company incorporated in the tax haven but all of the management and control of that company sits here in Myanmar it will be a Myanmar resident company from Myanmar perspective you have no tax treaty to help you in those circumstances either for an individual again very clear guidance if your home is here in Myanmar your permanent home you're based here in Myanmar you have a residence here in Myanmar you will be a resident of Myanmar if you don't and you're present here for 183 days in the tax year you will be a resident of Myanmar. A citizen of Myanmar that's working for the government wherever will always be a resident of Myanmar. Why do we care? Very simple. A Myanmar resident is taxable on income from all sources. It doesn't matter, for example, whether foreign dividend is put into your bank account in Singapore or it comes back to you here in uh, Myanmar. It's irrelevant. It's income from a source that's come home to you. Myanmar resident will be taxable on income from all sources with some specific exemptions that are covered in, in the Act. For a non-resident, the general rule again is simple. You will be subject to tax on income that is from a Myanmar source. Again, the law spells out very clearly three types of income, three classes of income and what is Myanmar source and what isn't. For employment, 
you look at where the employment is exercised. So employment income, you look to where the employment is exercised. If people come into Myanmar exercising their employment in Myanmar, they are technically taxable from day one. Fortunately, the Act provides a very sensible carve-out and says, subject to certain conditions, that you can be here for up to 90 days without creating uh, Myanmar source employment income. That can be extended under some of the treaties. So, for example, the Singapore Treaty contains very similar conditions and issues, but it extends that period to 183 days. From a business, a resident, a resident um, is going to be taxable on all of the income that arises in Myanmar, except that of a sorry, all of the income that arises globally, except that of a foreign permanent establishment. For a non-resident they're going to be taxable only on the income of a permanent establishment in Myanmar. Um, for their investment income, it's going to be where the source of the income arises. So um, if interest is paid from here to a non-resident, then clearly the interest has arisen here. The same with the royalty that is paid from here to a non-resident will have a source here. It's where the source of that investment income is that is important. For capital gains, a resident is going to be taxable on the gain on the disposal of a chargeable asset wherever situated. So if we sell the shares of a Singapore company, that is a chargeable asset and that is fully taxable as a capital gain on a Myanmar resident here in Myanmar. A non-resident, a gain on a chargeable asset is only um, a chargeable asset that is situated here in Myanmar. So if a non-resident sells his shares in a, um, a Singapore company, he's not going to be taxable here in Myanmar. So very clear, um, very well laid out. Um, it, it, it's, uh, I think it's one of the positive aspects of the new act, draft act. Yeah. Okay, also just, just want to add um, what has been mentioned by uh, Paul just now. I say if a Myanmar company um, or a Myanmar non-resident company is selling share in the Singapore company, um, yes, it will be regarded as an uh, income source outside Myanmar and therefore not subject to Myanmar applicable tax. But at the same time, if the Singapore share or the company is holding the share in Myanmar company, uh, in other words, underlying capital asset is a Myanmar capital asset. It could still be subject to uh, Myanmar capital tax under the draft uh, tax law, subject to some other conditions. That is absolutely true. And again, probably too much detail for, for this podcast, but there's a whole yep. list of what those Myanmar assets are. Um, uh, often looking at uh, real estate based here, real property that's based here, but it goes a lot further than that as well. Um, but again, the details of the capital gains tax changes are probably a little bit too much for this particular podcast, maybe for another one in the future. Yeah, maybe. Um, so we went quite into detail, but what are some of the more straightforward uh, changes that are in the draft law that taxpayers should be aware of? Sure, the draft uh, law contains many new and extended provisions. Uh, this include a general anti-avoidance rule, a detailed tax deductibility rule, say for example 50% of the entertainment expenses are not uh, tax deductible. This is just one example. There are some other tax uh, deductibility rule that uh, the taxpayers should be aware of. Right? There are also detailed capital gain tax provisions as mentioned by Paul just now. 
So there are also new uh, tax losses, carry forward rules for both capital and revenue. Um, it also includes the taxation of non-cash benefit. Say, for example, the benefit in kind received by the employees or individual could now be taxable under the draft tax law. Um, and the draft law also provided um, a depreciation of tangible and intangible asset. Uh, it also provide a simplified tax regime and system for small businesses. Then at the same time, there are also a specific tax rules for the companies or the organization uh, who are in the extractive industry and also the financial institution and insurance uh, banking sector. There are many, many other provisions uh, such as the updated withholding tax regime that are applicable to uh, certain uh, payment made to non-resident. Right. There are also some taxation rule um, apply to uh, finance leases and also the long-term contracts. So um, there are many other provisions in the draft tax law. Of course, we will be happy to discuss with you if you are interested to find out more about all these provisions that are introduced under the uh, draft law. Because all these provisions uh, definitely will have uh, impact on your business operation here in Myanmar. Yes, uh, as you're saying, this new tax law has many areas that could be considered, in particular international tax matters impacting both inbound and outbound investments. Um, Paul, could you cr provide us with an overview of some of the key provisions? Yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, new international tax concepts that are being brought into the law. Uh, new to our law anyway, I wouldn't say new to uh, uh, to, to global tax law, it's the sort of um, pr provisions we've seen in many places. Um, we'll start with the most obvious of them, which is transfer pricing. Um, to date we have no specific transfer pricing legislation. This act contains, um, at the moment, a very, uh, a very limited um, comment with regard to um, transfer pricing. But it, uh, it does look at the transfer price that would apply between a Myanmar party and a non-Myanmar party for any non-arms length transaction. Um, and the appropriate income and deductions of the parties will be determined according to transfer pricing regulations. And unfortunately that's where we stop because we don't have the transfer pricing regulations. We don't know whether we'll be required to keep uh, transfer pricing documentation as, um, because as a result of um, this draft legislation should be passed into law. The expectation is we will, but we eagerly await the detail of the uh, transfer pricing regulations. We can guess that they may look something similar to the usual OECD um, requirements, but uh, we just don't know. So let's wait and see. But, Definitely in there, at the moment just um, a blank sheet when it actually comes to the regulations. Foreign tax credits. The foreign income of a Myanmar um, resident at the moment is subject to tax. It's, um, so the, there is at the moment no exclusion. So many, um, many countries either apply an exemption mechanism for foreign income that is being usually taxed overseas, and uh, or they provide for foreign tax credits. 
the new uh, draft law does now contain a provision allowing a foreign tax credit. Um, not surprisingly, it will be limited to the Myanmar tax net on the net amount of income that is being derived from overseas. Um, it contains a requirement that the foreign income tax must be paid within two years from the end of the year in which the income is derived. It only goes one tier down, so it only looks at the taxes of the company that is paying the income to you. So if you've got a foreign group of companies and you're paying tax down in the subsidiary, pays a dividend up to its foreign holding company that pays that dividend to you in Myanmar, then if on the assumption the dividend in the whole co is exempt, which it usually is, when that income comes to you, it's still fully taxable. We don't go down to that tier underneath and trace the foreign tax credit. Also, excess foreign tax credits can't be used. There'll be no pooling, there's no carry forward. Um, so, yes, we've got foreign tax credits, but unfortunately we could do with a lot more um, um, foreign tax credit relief than is envisaged at the moment in this law. We also have thin capitalization, um, which is a concept where uh, foreign entities try to put excessive amounts of debt rather than equity into a Myanmar subsidiary, let's say. Why would you do that? Because the interest on that debt um, you would try to ensure it's fully deductible, so you get a deduction on the interest in Myanmar and the interest income will be assessed back in the home country with a withholding tax that would usually be assessed uh, by Myanmar on the payment of that interest. A lot of countries contain ratios. The ratio that's applied here is actually overall average debt to average equity. It doesn't actually look at the source of that debt. So it's looking at the overall debt to the overall equity and saying, suggesting at the moment that there's a recommended two to one ratio. Any excess um, debt, if you look at the ratio of the excess debt to the average debt, multiply it by the deductible interest you get an interest restriction. There'll be a percentage of the interest that will not be deductible. Fortunately in there, and particularly because this is the thin capitalization rule is very broad and covers all debt, um, a taxpayer will be able to use an arm's length debt amount as a safe harbor, which would be the amount of debt that a financial institution will lend to the company. So if you borrowed from a Myanmar or a foreign bank, um, let's say, but you're exceeding this two to one debt to equity ratio, you'll still be allowed to claim a full interest deduction. One of the other areas that I'll cover very um, quickly is gonna be the uh, area of tax treaties. Um, in general, the principles that are established in the law are very good. Um, because the tax treaties will override the domestic legislation. But there are two circumstances where that doesn't apply. Um, one is the general anti-avoidance provisions, and one is a very specific rule that has been put in place, which says that the treaty will not apply unless one or two conditions are met. Either the company in the treaty country is owned by a majority of residents of that country, which would mean, for example, 
as in many cases an intermediate Singapore holding company is used by a company outside of Singapore to invest into Myanmar. That structure is therefore under attack. The only other um, way you can use that treaty is um, it can still apply to income that is sourced from a business that is carried on in the treaty country um, and in Myanmar. So for example, if I've got a, an active finance and treasury centre, I would hope that the interest income that is charged into Myanmar from that centre can be uh, can access treaty rates of withholding because it's an active business that I'm carrying on in that, in that foreign country. Um, so there are a couple of exceptions to this, but really this is a significant attack on the use of intermediate holding companies um, and is something possibly we weren't expecting. Something we see in some of the US tax treaties in particular as a limitation of benefits article, but not often in domestic law, so um, it's an interesting one. Um, I'll leave it there. There are a couple of other areas I could go on to, PE, profit attribution, recharge of technical fees and royalties, but uh, I'll leave it there for the time being. Okay, so the government is obviously looking to improve tax compliance, right? You have already discussed the new penalty measures in the Tax Administration Act, but I understand that the Draft Income Tax Act also contains some specific anti-avoidance measures. Can you please elaborate on these and any links between the draft income tax law and the Income Tax Administration Act? You are right, Victor. Uh, the tax administration law that is effective from 1st October 2019 has really provided um, the, um, that the DG can, um, during the tax assessment, uh, can deny uh, transactions that are suspicious or fraudulent and found that such transactions are recorded to avoid uh, payment of tax. Right? Similar to the, this tax administration law, the draft income tax law does include various general anti-avoidance rules, such as income splitting, where income is split between associates to lower the overall taxable income. The DG can make the necessary adjustment to the income of both parties. Or, where a person has entered into a scheme and obtained the tax benefit in connection with that, the DG can also make the necessary tax adjustment. So in short, the inclusion the inclusions of a general anti-avoidance rule provision in both the tax administration law that has really been effective from 1st October 2019 and the new income tax law once it is enacted in the future, it will definitely help to improve the uh, tax compliance level uh, by the taxpayer. Thank you, Paul and Sukpeng. I know there are many other matters in the draft tax law, including significant new capital gains tax measures and specific tax law for companies in finance and insurance sectors and the extractive industries, but these will have to wait for a future update, I'm afraid. This is all we have time for today. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast and see you next time.